0: Deepkas, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Adam. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Of course. Well, I, I got to say, from the first time I was exposed to Gallup, I there's some real brilliance to take very complicated concepts and distill them down to powerful thoughts. And Gallup has this ability to communicate in a way that's really powerful, and and so do you. So for our audience, would you mind sharing what is your position within Gallup, and, and how does that Uh, really inform your perspective?
1: Sure. Uh, So I'm a senior practice expert with Gallup. I've been with the company now 20 years, and I've kind of lived and worked uh, across four countries with with Gallup. So I've had a lot of global exposure. A lot of my work is in the area of leadership development and organizational development. So a lot of work around employee engagement, leadership development, and succession management. Those are the things that I typically do with a lot of my clients. And then I also lead Gallup's efforts around leadership research. So a lot of work around understanding leadership competencies and work around what it takes to be a successful leader.
0: The biggest challenge I'm going to have is to keep this conversation to 40, 45 minutes because we could go on for hours. I have so many questions for you. But uh, where I'd like to begin, and I do with every episode, let's start at the CEO level. Uh, Yes, CEOs, all of them talk about the people matter. People are important. All of them talk about values. Most talk about purpose. But ultimately, you know, what do they measure versus what they talk about? What are the goals that you hear leaders talk about in terms of what they measure?
1: Yeah, I think what many leaders care about and I think give much attention to is is very clear. It's growth at the end of the day. Uh, there's, of course, much attention on capital expenditure, cost savings, you know, technology spends and so on. But I would say that while, you know, profit margins and productivity and in those indicators are critical, specifically in this post-pandemic world, we might be overemphasizing these, what I'd call lagging indicators, uh, you know, but le- leaders might not be focusing on so much or what we'd call leading indicators. So there are things like employee engagement or customer engagement or what Gallup would say are measures of employee thriving. Uh, employee well-being, and I'd also say an emotional connection to culture, and of course these are kind of intangible and, and difficult to measure, but we've we've seen that these measures really predict future success, so future growth and revenue, and that's what keeps most CEOs up at night, right? Uh, and, and again, no leader will say that they don't care about employee wellbeing or engagement, but kind of the result speaks for themselves. So, I'll give you some numbers there. So in the U.S., only about a third of employees are engaged at work, and that number has not materially changed for the last 10 years. In fact, after the pandemic, we are actually seeing a declining trend. So I wanna make, make one point, our CEO, John Clifton recently wrote a book called Blindspot. And, and according to John, one of the most significant indicators that CEOs and leaders have failed to see is the global rise of unhappiness. Um, so these numbers have shot up from something like around 24% in 2006 to almost 33% in 2021. By the way, what I'm talking about is a representative poll of about 98% of the world's population. So we're talking about 5 million interviews. Now, as you look at that rise in rise in global unhappiness, it's easy to blame the pandemic, but that increase in unhappiness predates the pandemic. And these are not black swan events. Uh, the pandemic was not a black swan event. And these disruptive changes we're seeing that CEOs need to take notice and take attention on uh, like things like workplace changes, employee burnout, these are not black swan events. So I'd say CEOs need to be able to kind of keep their pulse on what truly matters more to the emotional economy. And those metrics are the ones that drive the national economy. Everything like costs, profits and productivity and everything in between. So
0: so much there. So, So lagging indicators, leading indicators. CEOs measure the lagging indicators because it's easier. It's probably also how their jobs are measured. And there's one study that shows that most CEOs are actually concerned about their own jobs security. But you're saying it's time, and 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 it's always been time. These issues have been present. You said for ten years that we haven't made any progress in a positive direction. In in fact, you're saying a problem has been made worse as a result of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, and it's also inaction. You know, I mean, a lot of companies do measure a lot. I mean, they they have engagement surveys, they have brand surveys, they they're looking at what their customers are saying and so on. But how much of that is being translated into into action and decisions are the decisions being governed by more the rational economics or are decisions being driven by emotional economics and the upside that emotional economics represents
0: i'm with you is it translating into action and and that would be my next question to you I, i've been really challenged to think about who owns employee engagement and organizations so i've talked to change management i've talked to l d operation leaders innovation hr uh, I go sweet to sweet and I ask myself you know who who should own the employee engagement who should own this this emotional connection to the organization wh- what do you think
1: that's a big question uh you know and I think if you ask most organizations they'll say yes, it's the leadership team, and everyone does but but if you really look at the practical application here it's it's somebody in h r who's kind of uh, spearheading the survey and it's a pretty event-based programmatic approach to getting an engagement survey. But when you think about the indicator, I think some organizations think of employee engagement as kind of an overall measure or metric of organizational health. And in cases I've seen, it's kind of seen as an indicator of organizational culture. But at Gallup, we know that you probably have as many cultures as you have managers, right? Because there's tremendous range in engagement. There's tremendous variation. So so we put this to the test in research we did because we wanted to understand uh, if you want to think about what who the owner is, let's try to find out what what drives this variation. Um, and we looked at multiple factors. We looked at gender. Well, whether are you in the headquarters, are you in the regional office, or how long you've been with the company and so on. What we discovered is perhaps our single most, uh, that's a significant discovery on workplace. A single individual, which is the manager, explains about 70% of the variance on employee engagement. So the most significant decision a CEO can make, or the most significant decision, Leaders can make is whom you name as manager and and, and whom you don't. Right? That's the other point. So, so if leaders are really serious about engagement, then rather than kind of deputing HR to go fix my engagement problem, you know, you are to start with equipping your managers to be better coaches uh, to help them provide better feedback, provide more consistent feedback, more continuous development feedback. I, I think that's important. So we kind of call this the boss to coach shift that is required how you need to really make sure that managers are not acting like bosses but more like coaches or providing feedback, inspiration, and engagement on an ongoing basis. That actually makes a bigger difference than any programmatic once-in-a-year survey does.
0: And, and, And it makes sense you know, you work with your manager, that's the person you look for to evaluate your progress. It's the person you look for recognition for for many of the aspects in the workplace. And and managers typically do not get promoted because they're amazing with people. Most managers get promoted because of the technical skills. So there has to be intentionality behind their organization in order to help evolve their managers. What are you seeing as best practices to prepare managers to undertake this this aspect of the employee engagement journey, and, and what within it uh, should managers focus on?
1: Yeah, I you know what we did a survey a while ago, and this was in India, and this was for uh, software uh, developers, and we were trying to understand how software developers, uh, you know, what their career path looks like, and so on. And what we found was interesting that the mo- the better you get at building, developing code, and doing great software the less you get to do it because you're promoted to being a manager. So it's the Peter principle, right? You're promoted to higher degrees of incompetence. So when we talk to all these fantastic code uh, code developers and software engineers who are now managers about what they liked about their job, they said, actually, I, it's what I miss the most, which is developing great code. So I think that's important. Not everybody is cut out to be a great manager. Um, so you not need to be able to understand what is talent, innate talent in being a great manager look like. So I think that's that's one. So I think managers again are critical to engagement. And yeah, another area that I think is often overlooked is company culture. And that's where you're seeing some massive problems. So recent research and we've been we've been continuously polling since the pandemic. Of course we've been polling for a fairly long time, but Almost at a quarterly level, we're actually coming out with some really interesting insights. So one of the big focus areas we uh, put in our research was culture. And we asked employees, hey, uh, do you feel a sense of emotional connection to the culture of the organization? And We found out that only two in 10 employees actually feel emotionally connected to culture. So I think the managers are important. But the other thing from an organizational point of view is that a lot of companies are feeling that their culture is drifting. A lot of that has to do with, you know, as you know, working from home or in a kind of a flex hybrid setup, there's less connection to, you know, culture's traditional ritualistic or kind of infrastructural components. So if if, if companies have over invested in setting up culture building as an activity or an event, then that's, that's an issue. So besides managers, the other thing that we need to really focus on is kind of rebuilding culture, reimagining it because your culture has evolved. It's in many ways it's drifted. So using the same paradigm of culture building in 2019 is not going to work because most of your employees, a big chunk of your employees, are not walking into work and feeling and experiencing that culture.
0: Well, just think about that number: two out of ten feel of conne- eight out of ten do not feel an emotional connection to their organization what what does that mean if i don't feel emotionally connected to the, to the organization how does that translate into my performance
1: disconnection uh, to an extreme uh, i'd say you know um, you've all heard about the quiet quitters you know i mean that's something that's taken up a lot of we've been kind of reporting on the quiet quitter for a, for a really long time we call them not engaged so these are the kind of uh, employees who walk into work are perhaps disconnected with their culture they'll do their bare minimum but that's all they'll do. Uh, so I think that's one. We've seen that engagement connects directly to performance outcomes at the end of the day. So if you've got a lot of employees just coasting, it won't have an impact on performance outcomes and the kind of growth aspirations that you have. I think that disconnection is, 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 is aspirated by thing. I think this kind of remote working and then move toward remote working. So like I said, I think that's what, you almost need to audit your culture, if you know what I mean. It's like, hey, where is my culture today? and not um, have assumptions around your culture and the way it existed before. Because you the way you work has changed. changed. And culture is the way you work. So really looking at that is important.
0: You, you're so right. And as I'm thinking, and, and experiencing the aspects of the virtual culture, it, it's really difficult and, and almost without being intentional, by default, the inertia of, of the experiences takes us toward just focusing on work and not the personal aspects and um you know you get on the zoom calls right and it's an hour it's 45 minutes you're done there's a hi how are you how was your weekend we're moving on but in the office those moments were you know waiting for the meeting before walking out together how about we now get some water or get some coffee do you want to go for a walk do you want to do lunch all of those is what built those emotional connections all of those experiences is what created the bonds between individuals and their organization and um, now they're gone what do we do what do you see great organizations do in terms of being really intentional about their culture with a focus on taking the virtual experiences and evolving them to be closer to those that were in person
1: Yeah, I think the catch out of the bag. I think uh, leaders want employees to walk back into the office, uh, uh, but they're not really truly understanding how needs have changed. So one of the things we talk about is you almost uh, organizations need to create a workplace value proposition to get people to walk back in. Uh, And that needs to be a compelling value proposition. Why should I walk back in and what do I get? So our research suggests that it's actually things like collaboration. It's things like connection. These are the things that are required. So even though a lot of employees are kind of working hybrid now, there are opportunities when they do walk into work to maximize your culture. When they do walk into work to emphasize recognition, to emphasize collaboration, to conduct hackathons, to get people together. So I think maximizing the moments when people do walk in, that's more important rather than forcing people to walk in and stay in the office. I think that's what we are seeing. Mm.
0: so would you say this isn't going back to normal that it's creating a new normal in other ways we're not expecting this to be a nine to five back to the office for those that have that choice are we looking for this to be a you know a couple times a week it's now intentional you're coming back in for collaboration That you're coming back for connection team building how do you see it
1: this is the new normal this is the next normal you know i'll give you some numbers there on hybrid research, which are interesting. So we're, we're seeing that our latest research, this is actually Q2 of 2022. We're showing that about six in 10 employees prefer hybrid working. That's a very large number if you think about it. About three in 10 want to be exclusively remote. And, and then and less than one in 10 would actually like to be onsite. That's the preference. In terms of who is currently working hybrid, about five in 10. So hybrid is the way. And when you kind of think about what are the advantages of hybrid? So we did a survey where we asked hybrid workers, uh, what are the advantages of working in this way? And better work-life balance, uh, more efficient use of the time you have, freedom, lesser burnout, all that is good. But they also kind of admitted that they feel less connected to the culture of the company. So it comes at a cost overall. And collaboration and relationship building, that's also impaired. So I, like I mentioned, what companies need to do is build a new workplace value proposition, not force people to walk in, because productivity does suffer. Uh, a lot of hybrid working uh, population is saying that they're more productive when they're working hybrid, and then maximize the time when employees are kind of on site. Another, another big strategy that companies are using is individualization, which means that, you know, employees working from home have different needs. And rather than force-fitting a management style, you kind of start with listening to what employees want, right? adjusting as a manager a management style to what they want, what their needs are, what their strengths are, what their goals are, because that'll enable to deliver their best performance, right? irrespective of work schedule or where they work. Individualization is incredibly important.
0: It makes a ton of sense. And, and I've had a lot of conversations recently where I hear organization executives are, are very linear back to office we got to get work done and then there's a disconnect or, or on the opposite extreme are are the associates within the organization saying no, no no hold on a second especially for those where you know let's say there isn't a lot of collaboration or teamwork by design of what they do you're now adding tremendous commute pressure less time with the family without there being a reason and you're saying it's about individualizing it's about understanding the needs of that person and then making sure that you are meeting them where they are while understanding the needs of the organization. Is that right?
1: That's absolutely right. And that does require conversation. That that requires constant connection. So sometimes, you know, when you are hybrid, your kind of managers might forget or not have an intentional, consistent focus on dialogue and conversation. What I mean by that is not just daily work. Actually having a connection, a conversation, Asking questions uh, like, do you know what's expected of you? Uh, what do you value the most? Tell me about a project you've done recently. How can I help you? <laughs> you know, Those uh, individualized personal conversations, regular check-ins, even though that you're remote, those are incredibly important.
0: And, and let's talk about th- this idea of a connection, very specifically between the manager and associate. And a connection, w- doesn't in my view it doesn't mean time together although that's a factor of it but you could be on the phone with someone for 10 15 minutes and uh, you may not improve the connection you may be robotic you may be distracted you're not authentic you're not real you could still be asking some questions what project did you work on but you don't show that you really care i think a connection is when you're present when you're authentic and when you show that you care for the person on the other side where does your research and your travels, what does it take you in terms of how to build a connection that's real?
1: Yeah, for one, I'm going back to what I said earlier. Not everybody is cut out to be a manager. So if you're not cut out to be a manager, you're likely to use the conventional, traditional command and control kind of way of working. But I think what I've seen great managers do differently is ask great questions. And these questions are, Focused and targeted at the individual. Now, at Gallup, we have this thing called Clifton Strengths, which kind of gives you a fairly good idea. It's a, it's a psychometric assessment and a survey that you take, and um, it tells you what your top five strengths are. So, for example, my number one theme is ideation. My number two theme is strategic. Now, if you want to have an individualized conversation as a manager with an employee, that's fantastic information because you're saying, "Hey, I'm going to ask questions that are individualized to this in, this, this person." And I'm going to give him opportunities that help him maximize the strengths that he always already has. At the same time, you might have certain non-talents and, you know, I'm going to help them with that. So, for instance, my number 34 theme is uh, discipline. So obviously, you know, having a manager who doesn't kind of say, hey, I want you to be disciplined and I'll send you to discipline school and, you know, I've got to do this and so on. To say, hey, how can I help you with that? Can I get you a partner? Can I, can, is there a system you can use and so on? So this strengths-based management style, that highly individualized management style, that's what great managers do exceptionally well. Cause the conversation is focused not on what I want you to do, but is how can I enable you to shine every day? There's a huge difference between, like I said, the boss to coach shift is, is, in, is, is the point we are trying to make, is a strengths-based shift.
0: The day where Dr. Clifton came up multiple times, I actually just spoke to our friends at BI Worldwide, and and, um, the gentleman there, Mark, he used to work with Dr. Clifton, and similar to myself, once I was exposed to the idea of strength-based, and and I took the test and I have an activator as one of my profiles, or one of my strengths, I couldn't look back, and I kept wondering, why isn't this the norm in organizations? And hearing you talk about it now in the context of connection, it's almost saying, look, if you're a manager that, that really cares, then you take the time to understand. Once you take the time to understand, then you customize your conversations, you tailor your approach. It's no longer about you, it's about the person you're talking to. How do you show up and meet them where they are? How do you help them focus on their strength? How do you take responsibility for their journey and, dare I say, responsibility for helping them unlock their potential in their career?
1: Yeah. No, strengths for us and Gallup, it's a revolution. We're, we're on a mission. <laughs> uh, we've got about more than 21, 28 million people have taken strengths. And I think our estimates is that every day somebody takes about 6,500 people actually take the strengths. That's the mission we are on because we want the world to know their strengths. Wouldn't that be a much better life for everyone where you're actually focusing and playing to your strengths? But I think a lot of organizations, uh, a focus there is in the deficit-based approach. Like, let's focus on what's wrong with you rather than what's right with you. And it does take a lot of time to shift that mindset because that's what people have grown up with all these years. Most traditional management would tell you that you need to review, uh, you know, what are the weaknesses of an individual? And Dr. Clifton's big shift was uh, positive psychology. You know, it's what's right with you. Let's start there. That that can, and, and then find that and then amplify it. Uh, provide more opportunities for people to live their strengths every day.
0: That was a paradigm shift in my career. I think it was about six or seven years ago I was exposed to positive psychology and, and my career t- took a turn. Um, what What is in your experience when you have executives that uh, they're not bought in on strength-based? Executives, like you said, that grew up in, you know, like I, I've seen a lot in my first career in investment banking. Uh, there's no chance the folks that I used to work with are going to be interested in uh, strength-based, Well, maybe today, I, I hope they've changed, but at that time, certainly they wouldn't be interested. When when executives are not sold on that idea, do you see them being able to change over time? Is there a moment where they look at the case study, use case, or is it about the next generation of executives coming in, coming in that would get it?
1: It's the first step is really for them to generate a sense of self-awareness themselves. So when I've worked with CEOs and I'm an executive coach, so I work with leaders. Is when they get to know what their strengths are, they might not immediately agree with those. But they, as they kind of, as I work with them, as as some of our coaches work with executive leaders, it is incredible how quick that shift happens in terms of yes, I do see it because you know, the point about strengths is that uh, even uh, strengths can. They have a dark side and they have a light side, you know. So it's overuse of strength can also be injurious to who you are as a leader, you know. So if I have high achiever, you know, I'm highly focused, but you know, I might be leaving dead bodies in my stride. So I think when 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 leaders start understanding and getting feedback and sharing their strengths with their peers and with their direct reports and get great feedback, get great positive feedback, reinforcement as well as very direct, honest, brutally honest feedback. I think the shift happens then. Otherwise, it'll never happen because it'll always be going back to the um, the traditional mode uh, of saying, "Hey, let's focus on what's wrong."
0: Become the change that you want to see in the world, right? If if an executive says it's not for us, it's for them. You know that that is not going to be the beginning beginning of a change that will take hold. What I'm curious about next is, you know, back to the manager, right? And the book, you know, Galeb's book about the manager. And I think you and I even mentioned a few times, hey, it's all about the manager, stupid. Not saying someone is stupid, but, but fundamentally, we must focus on the managers. But we also must be empathetic. The managers have a lot on their plates, whether you call them the frozen middle, whether you talk about how much pressure they have being in between. And here we're adding more more onto their plates that's not performance that's not core to their business as they see it but all of a sudden we're talking about keeping in mind the strength of their associates having more conversations they're responsible for the connection i want to talk about the future of people initiatives what do you what do you see in the future state how would you dream about the future and and i think you you and i would agree that technology would be part of the solution but what do you think is the future of how we enable managers to do better in this aspect, as a case in point of improving the connections that they have with their direct reports, as well as the reports to the uh, organization.
1: Yeah, I really think the future is more human than it is technological. You know, I mean, I wrote an article about this called "Augmented Leadership." You know, and can you think about augmented reality and the and the metaverse and so on. And what about augmented humanity? You know, how, how are we not going to replace managers and leaders with, with a bunch of code? Uh, so I think the, the importance of man, the managers and leaders and driving emotional connections, uh, the, the, the 70% of decision making is emotional, that I think is, is still going to be important. But this is also where we have the biggest challenge because our, our latest research, again, from Q2 this year, shows that about 47% of leaders are engaged. That number for managers is 34%. So leaders are engaged, not necessarily managers. Managers are almost at the same level of engagement as compared to individual uh, uh, contributors. And amongst those managers, the managers that are struggling the most are hybrid managers. So think about that. Hybrid managers is a very different uh, kettle of fish there. Uh, And there's a a lot that leaders can do to help these managers. So you mentioned that, and that's right. One of the biggest challenge we've seen managers face is competing priorities. Now you you couple that with increasing workload, couple that with the challenge of uh, managing and coordinating across multiple sites. Like you're a hybrid manager, you're managing somebody else who's hybrid, somebody else who's on site, somebody who's who's remote, somebody who's in a different time zone. That has put tremendous amounts of load on hybrid managers and tremendous amount of burnout. So when you think about engagement and burnout, hybrid managers have the lowest levels of hope. So I, I think what leaders can do is simplify, simplify their lives. Um, Of course, select the right kind of people for those positions. I I talked about that as well. But provide good feedback and coaching. Um, Take something off their plate before adding something more. You know, so leaders can actually simplify strategy and how that translates into tactics. That'll help managers immensely. Uh, And then just really investing in their development, investing in their ability, like I said, to become a better coach and not just kind of pushing them up the career ladder, you know, to higher levels without equipping them with the right kind of management skills. I think that's going to be very important. That's the role of leadership, I think.
0: Couldn't agree more. I'm curious to hear more about the augmented leadership. I I think there's a lot of concern about technology coming into our lives. And it's almost like you're saying technology can help us be more human and, and help leaders become more human. How do you see that future?
1: Yeah, I I think technology is an enabler. It's not something that'll replace what we do. In fact, it'll free us up to do more of this emotional connection in the future. You know, technology and augmented leadership, if you may, and that's already happening. You look at uh, you know the metaverse and Microsoft uh, HoloLens and all those all that great gizmos. I think they will not. They cannot replace that emotional connection between an individual and uh, a, and a person that they're managing. Uh, what it can do and where technology needs to be used in the right way is to simplify, is to automate, and then free up time to actually do more of coaching, working with each other, thinking about breakthrough ideas, innovating, brainstorming. So I think all those will will be helped by the advent of technology. But whenever we see, hey, technology can replace the human connection, I'd be very wary of that
0: well if the moment that uh, technology can replace a human connection i i think the least of our concerns is going to be what happens between a manager and and a direct report i think at that point our entire society is going to face an entirely new set of challenges which could be its own podcast i think you would agree
1: (laughs) no and that's why leaders need to prioritize investments i'm not saying they need to don't need to prioritize technology technology in the way it enables our people our customers our suppliers all of that is good but prioritize the emotional economy prioritize in investments which create well-being that create thriving for not just our employees but also our customers so i think uh, that's the big dif- difference the big shift that leaders need to make in their thinking
0: and, and going back to leadership and you said it's from a manager to a coach right? What are some of the most distinct characteristics that define someone from being a manager or moving from being a manager to becoming a coach?
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that we found to be extremely important. And I, and a big part of that, I think I already mentioned is the ability to ask great questions and the ability to listen. So I think that the traditional mold is kind of unclear and misaligned expectations, right? You kind of saying, hey, here's what I need you to do, uh, but not really establishing expectations really well. Sharing expectations, I think that we found that to be a big one. The other one is uh, the traditional boss is more ineffective and infrequent feedback. But the coach is really the continual coaching and ongoing conversation. So at Gallup, we talk about five conversations rather than one or two. There's one conversation that you have at the beginning of the year. There's one that you do at the end of the year. But there are other conversations you can do in the middle of the year development-focused conversations, quick check-ins. You know, we've seen managers do that exceptionally well. And I always say this, if you think about an average manager having five direct reports, if you were able to spend maybe an hour per direct report per quarter, having a conversation about the individual, not about your work, but about them, that's five hours a quarter. That's not a lot of, of investment that you know can create a fantastic impact on engagement performance and productivity so i think that's one and then obviously create accountability around it and so on but that's the difference that great managers make
0: sounds so that's excellent that's not a lot of time it's it's all about being intentional with the time that you do have and understanding that the impact that's going to create is going to be you know profound it will improve retention it'll, but also going back to where we started this conversation it's going to have an impact on every Lagging indicator that you're tracking as an organization.
1: That's correct. The 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 seventy percent drives the thirty <laughs> percent. You know, the seventy percent emotional drives the thirty percent, and leaders must understand that.
0: Yeah. So, you know, just kind of thinking about what's next, the folks that are listening to this podcast, th- these are not the naysayers or the skeptics at the executive level. These are champions inside their organization. So imagine a champion, a profile of someone that could be as in an L&D change management, maybe they're an operations leader. They truly believe strength-based approach they, m- works. They truly want to help elevate their managers to become coaches, to focus on building a connection um, on the connection with the organization, how do they begin how What do you see as the most successful path to gain internal alignment for champions to affect this type of change
1: yeah I, I think I, it really does need to start with leaders and kind of and i 'd say leadership alignment at the top you know because I think why leaders want to focus and invest in the rational element is because they find a sense of comfort there. A sense of predictability and and emotions are, are messy and, and complex and difficult to deal with. So aligning on that, before I work with any organization around a large scale change or transformation efforts, I always want the leaders to come together and be aligned on, on things like priorities and decisions and their unique strengths and their collective strengths and so on. So I think starting with leaders and getting leaders to experience this, the power of emotional economics, firsthand, I think that's the first one you need to do. You also do need to make a business case for it. So it's not just a fuzzy HR initiative, but it has real teeth. And uh, you know, I mean, Gallup research uh, has shown that if you actually do focus on strengths, on engagement, there's a massive impact on any imaginable business outcome you can think of, whether it's turnover, profitability, productivity, customer metrics, and so on. so. And leaders need to see the business case, like they would want to see the business case in any other rational investment they make. There is a, there is a, a business case for these emotional metrics as well. So I think that, that would be my first bit of advice. The other is, which is kind of a mantra for me, I always say it's culture before structure. So, you know, if, if you want to bring about cultural, with structural change, you first need to start with building cultural resiliency and drive cultural change, because without culture, your structure is bound to fail. So don't go straight to, hey, let's put this program in place and let's put this initiative in place. First understand the capacity of your culture to be able to do this effectively. So whether it's a strength based or an engagement, whatever you're trying to do, don't go straight to program. Go to understand first what your culture looks like. And again, I want to reinforce the importance of the manager uh, and, and, and gaining buy-in from these managers. And, and leaders must engage these managers uh, kind of early on the journey. As co participants and not as just recipients of recipients of change, if you may um, so I think that's that 's the key. get your leaders aligned, talk, think through the culture, understand where you are, and then get get managers to join you on that journey of change
0: get them to join you and and within those managers there 's probably going to be as any any other uh, adoption there 's going to be their early adapters there 'll be those those that are really excited there' are going to be some that are in between and then there're going to be some that are either trailing change or maybe will not align to where the organization is headed? Do you, do you see some of those difficult conversations come up in, in companies as they go through this journey?
1: Absolutely. So we, we think that if you want to really think about true managers, great managers, uh, and if you think about those who have an innate talent for being a great manager, our estimate is about 1 in 10. <laughs> you know, I know it's very less. 2 in 10 have kind of conditional talent you know, and can do the job. The rest really need a lot of help. They, they need coaching. They need feedback. So you're right. So the early adopters are the one who get it. They're the first one to say, yes, this makes sense. Being a coach makes sense. And they're already doing it. That's the other thing. If you, if you look in your organizations, you'll see, actually, there are some who are already doing it. Why not kind of use those and showcase those as, uh, I hate to use the word best practices, but it's kind of like, here's an example of a manager who is already doing all of this. And then kind of exemplify that um i'd say there is already a lot of great engagement in most organizations and just is waiting to be found
0: yeah shine a spotlight on where it works scale that uh, make sure to keep uh, being intentional and, and thinking about kind of the you know future-proofing the organization i have so many more questions but looking at time i just want to pause here with one last question for you before i let you go and and i very much appreciate your time but as you think about where where the organizations are headed in the future, um, and we know you know a lot of challenges in some ways unprecedented, um, although we have talked about some of the data that has stayed you know pretty pretty steady. What are you most excited about as you think about the future of organizations?
1: I'm most excited about the ability of organizations to identify talent and to be able to put that talent in the right place and in front of our best and biggest opportunities to drive change. And when I say that, I mean to create a change and uh, almost a shift in the human condition. Because I, I think more of it as the organization's commitment and responsibility to driving larger organizational sustainable change, if you know what I mean. I mean, if you think about what the pandemic has done, uh, you know, it, it's, it's brought out the most predictably irrational part of us, you know, in many ways. And, and I think our biggest impact is going to be providing people with opportunities so that they can be their best and drive impact, not just in the work they're doing, but to do something that takes this, takes our humanity a few steps forward rather than many steps back. You know, because I, So it, it it is about understanding and realizing human behavior in all its glory and in all its pain. I, I know it might seem a little uh, intangible, but I, I think we can have leaders make that difference with people and their well-being and their engagement. And yes, we can change the world.
0: Few steps forward to change the world. What a thought to leave our conversation on. This has been incredible. Thank you for taking the time. I, I can't wait to, br- to bring you back on again.
1: It's a pleasure, Adam. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Over now.